you're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. Hello and welcome to The Film File, I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meekin. Feeling and a lot I'm better just... as well this week. Oh, that's good. That was my next question. I was going to say, I'm barely hanging in, but that's for other reasons. I'm not ill. Still a little uh, tired because being ill kind of knocks it out of you and takes a good few days to catch up. But let me tell you about tired. <laughs> let me tell you this, buddy. Yeah, so we played a show last night, as you know, dear listeners. We uh, record this uh, usually the Sunday, uh, unless there's any updates. The Sunday before we go out on Wednesday gives Andy time to to edit, cut out all my ums and ahs and ooh, what was I going <laughs> to say? Uh, so we played a gig Halloween. Halloween's like our Christmas for the for the band. It was down in Birmingham. Brilliant show, fantastic venue, uh, Billingsley Rock Club. We love you, uh, and they love us. Apparently, we couldn't get off stage. Did two encores. Uh, by the time we got out of the venue, was way gone twelve o'clock. My other half uh, and I decided to stay in Birmingham. Thankfully, because I don't think I could have faced uh, all that journey home. Boy, I'm shattered. Absolutely shattered. Stayed in a hotel. They had a, a pool and a jacuzzi, so we got up early-ish. We had an extra hour in bed and, and went and sat in the jacuzzi, which did me no favours. Then we <laughs> went to a restaurant. even more. <laughs> it does. I'm whacked. I'm absolutely whacked out. We were, Then we went for a huge carvery. And I'm going to say a vegan carvery as well, So, which uh, I know sounds odd, but stay with me. Uh, for you budding veganites, you'll understand. My Again, my other half is vegan. Uh, and I ate my body weight in uh, Sunday dinner. I then had to drive back for an hour and a half. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to make this. I've, I've got a cup of tea in front of me just to try and make it through the opening salvo of the show, let alone another hour and hour, however long it takes this week. Probably about 20 minutes if I carry on the way I'm doing. Well, if you fall asleep, I'll just keep talking and uh, I'll fill in the gaps. I've got enough to be able to talk about anyway, so I'm, I'm fine. We're covered. So you just take it easy, dude. Oh, um, thank you. I'm glad to see you're feeling better. I'm glad you couldn't get a word in edgeways just after my my opening salvo. <laughs> um, I, well, this week, you know, aside from slowly recovering from the illness that I was suffering last week, observant people out there who watch BBC's points of view might have spotted me pop up on there for 10 seconds this week. Oh, did you go along to the recording? Uh, no, I... Or were you just wandering through? <laughs> I, I sent them a video review of the interview with the Vampire series that started recently on BBC. And uh, oh, they included right. 10 seconds of me talking about the, the casting, the scenery, the costumes, the music as part of the viewers' responses section. Um, so I, I didn't publicize this. I didn't tell people about it, but I've had a few people met. That was quite a surprise. And my mum spotted it today. So uh, she's posted it online today. It's like, this. my son was on BBC Points of View. It's like, okay, fair enough. I kept it quiet. I kept it still, but people know. Yeah. I'm quite. I'm more pleased about being on it because how I framed my camera was perfect in the living room. Because there's oh, my living room's a mess. I, I'm a me and my wife are hoarders. We're clutterers. We live in organised chaos. And so it was like can't really can't really record this. That's why I, I use these backdrops on the videos because behind me on the kitchen table is an absolute disgrace at the moment. I basically just dumped everything off the couch onto the floor and just put some cushions behind me. And I've had the camera looking up with just, um, you know, me canvas print of Grand Budapest Hotel that I've got. Yeah. And yeah. that just behind me as well. And it was like, there you go. That's framed perfectly. It looks like I live in a decent house. <laughs> <laughs> you see, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna to get back into talking about film stuff in a second. 
But um, <laughs> my other half's a bit of a hoarder, and I'm not. I'm I'm into sort of minimalism. Give me mm. give me a minimalistic life. So when she moved into my house with the uh, uh, with the child, uh, it changed everything. And you know, that was up to me to get used to. But uh, she's having a bit of a sort out, and 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 the child's now he's he's ten. So a lot of the old toys that he never plays with, and to be honest, never really played with. You know, you buy kids presents for Christmas, uh, unwraps them, uh, the stuff that he's never played with. Yeah. So uh, they're, they're all sat in boxes because it was half-term holiday. And they were off and they were sorting everything out. But I've got boxes everywhere of stuff that they're going, oh, can't get rid of that. Oh, it might just it might just come in useful. <laughs> no. no. Oh, I can won't. Because I, 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 I have loads of unopened things. I have loads of things that we bought on a whim and an impulse and we've never used. Will I get rid of them? No, because there might come a day when we That's need it, them. But if the zombie work. apocalypse breaks out, I might need all these things. So I'm sat yeah, on all dinosaurs these dinosaurs aren't going to save you. It's like you know, my poster collection from the cinema, like my cinema work over the past 20 odd years. They're never going to see the light of day again. They're all in poster tubes stored in a cupboard. But they're there and they're never moving because they're my posters. And I don't care that they're just sat there. They're my posters. No one's moving them. On a separate subject, um, observant people will have noticed that I popped out, as promised, my reviews from last week on the YouTube channel as well as a little yeah. seven-minute clip. It was so easy to put together as well. So that's something that I'm intending to do going forward. I might start to do the ones as well whenever you've contributed one. I'll snip that out of the episode and pop that up as a separate Lee reviews. So it's just to give us some more content out there and give people who don't want to sit through like an hour and a half of the full podcast, but want to just dive in to know what our film reviews are like. They have another option in order to find out what we thought about films. Yeah, and... I, I tuned in. Uh, very good job, sir. And I need to mention as well, I mean, as you know, we've got a special deal at the moment for Harvey Morton's book, which releases, which you can pre-order. We have through, indeed. He's our sponsor for this week's episode. You can pre-order it through eurospanbookstore.com using the code FILMFILE25 and you get a whopping 25% off. But the date has been moved forwards. It was originally planned to come out just before Christmas. It's now coming out on November the 8th. So head over to eurosbandbookstore.com and search for Harvey Morton or Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur and you will find the book. Place that pre-order. Harvey's life is absolutely fascinating. He's an inspiration to us all of how he's grown to where he is. Bumped into him at work the other day. I was wearing my Freddy costume for Halloween. Uh, weekend and he's still he's still engaged in pleasant conversation with me despite the fact he was clearly freaked out by the fact that he was talking to freddie Krueger. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's a lovely lovely guy and his story is an inspiration and also packed with like nice little tips for yourself to drive yourself and to get yourself where you see yourself being excellent so that's our sponsor for this week and on the subject of books, I just need to quickly share something because this is going to play into my neat thing later. Audible. I cancelled my subscription to Audible early this year because I had a lot of podcasts to catch up on, such as Brett Goldstein's excellent podcast that I'm now up to date on. And you go through the cancellation things and inevitably after a few months, you start sending the email saying, come back to us for $3.99 a month. So I've been getting those emails quite regularly. Last week, I decided, ah, I'll try, I, I, that's about time that I jump back on. There's a few things on there that I want. So I clicked on it, code not valid, cannot be applied. So I, okay, what's going on here? So Why I went back, that? 
checked the terms and conditions. Date was all correct. Read further through the terms and conditions. Terms are all correct. What are the terms and conditions? Now, this is an email that said, come back to us. What are the terms and conditions? Existing members, not applicable. So how can you come back to them as an existing member with a code that isn't applicable for an existing member? And I thought maybe it was just a one-off issue. This week, I had another email from them, worded differently, but still, welcome back. Come join us again. Special deal for four months, $3.99 per month. Okay, give this one a shot. Exactly the same issue. Check the terms and conditions. Exactly the same. So you'll remember, you can come back to us for $3.99 a month, but once you get to check out, we're going to charge you $7.99 a month. Audible, you're dead to me. We'll get back <laughs> onto the second part of this conversation in my neat thing later. Okay, so I'm assuming it has some kind of a happy resolution. I don't want to spoilery it i'm going to take that as leading into um our question of the week so last week's question of the week which i i've got to be honest it was one of my favorite questions scenes that scare you not necessarily entire movies but that one scene that stays with you after you've watched a, a scary movie or a particularly intense thriller what is it and i i was recounting a story about a girlfriend and I who went to see The Others. We saw it at a press show at uh, your old cinema. So it's mm. fairly empty. I think we were, we were the only two in. And there's a scene where it looks like a little girl in sort of a, a veil. I don't know if you remember the, the sequence. And yes. uh, as it approaches, it turns out to be an old woman. Anyway, this girlfriend of mine screamed. And I mean, not just gasped. But scream. So thankfully, it was a press show, and I think we were the only two in. But I, I, I leapt out of a seat. Absolutely, one of the funniest things I've ever seen. <laughs> the thing is, you say you're making up this story about a girlfriend, but come on, I've sat with you in horror films. It was you, wasn't it? You're just you're just trying to disguise. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it was my girlfriend from Canada. <laughs> Lee is the perfect person to watch a horror film with. Because he jumps at everything. He's very edgy. He's on edge all the way through. I will sit there chuckling alongside him. Every one of his reactions. It's great. Um, it, it, you're the perfect audience for horror. That's that's. What I do. I, it's because I get involved. I, I think that, that, that cinema is my church, and I pay close attention, and I uh, I am beloved to it, and, and get involved. I'm never uh, I'm never um, a spectator who who's not active. I'm always part of mm. the what the performance is that's why i don't i can never get people who go to the cinema and are doing other things looking at their phone which is is uh, sacrilege you know you're there to to absorb a movie and, and uh, with horror movies i do that and yeah uh, when i'm sat with you normally i'm leaping out of my seat but anyway <laughs> and it's not because of anything i'm doing trust me <laughs> <laughs> Um, so anyway, like we threw out the question, what's the scariest moment in a film that's impact you? Not necessarily horror. Patricia Meekin said, I can't remember the film. It was black and white. Not sure if it was Psycho. But before one scene, an announcement is put on screen with a countdown on a clock to give audiences time to leave oh, before the scene. Right, hang on, stay with me. I'm, I'm thinking it through. I'm thinking it through. You're trying to think what, you're trying to think what yeah, it is, aren't you? Yeah, I, 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 I've got a feeling it might be the tingler. I think you might be right there. Um, a shadow on a wall shows an elderly woman going down in a stair lift and her head starts nodding and falls off. All done in shadow. That's remained in her mind since she was a teenager when she saw it. If we can work out exactly what the film was, we will get back to you on that one. Uh, Lindsay's story. All the obvious ones. Salem's Lot window scene. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. We mentioned that when we were talking about Salem's Lot, how even now it's still, because it was filmed backwards, it's so unnatural and unnerving that it sticks with you ever since. Yeah. Um, but the other scene where Jeffrey Lewis is in the rock, rocking chair used to get me, still makes me feel funny when I watch it. 
The underground scene in American Werewolf, yes, very much yes. I mean, I've said before that I watched American Werewolf at far too early an age. I mean, not for the horror elements, but for, you know, Jenny Agatha. That scene, every time that I rewatched it, I'd start to get heckles on the back of my like, neck. I'd start to, like, start... I'd feel unnerved knowing what's coming because that scene really hit me. And the scene where you first see John Merrick in The Elephant Man frightened me to death. She said, like, she could have actually put it for last week's question as she clearly didn't understand I was too young. And also a film that frightened her all the way through because of how bad it was, was Preta Porter. Hands down the worst <laughs> film ever made. <laughs> Owen Cooper said, non-horror, he'd have to say Oppenheimer. We'll never forget walking out the cinema and being completely silent the entire way home after the ending scene. As for horror, not many scare me. I've become desensitised, but I'll have to go with the sinister lawnmower scene due to the music and build-up. Yeah, I'll, I'll go with that one. Yeah. Uh, or The Exorcist Believer, just for sitting through it. Absolute horror. <laughs> and I'll definitely agree with you on that one. It frightened me how much time I spent in a screen watching that film. Over on Blue Sky, Tiny Barrister said, probably the scene at the hospital in The Exorcist 3. Those who know, know. Yes, the nurse um, scene. Yes. Also, the scene in the car with the daughters in Mike Flanagan's Haunting of Hill House, which he then realised it wasn't the daughters and said, sisters, not daughters, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I believe the, the Exorcist 3 scene came up again over on Twitter, where Stevie Dan 1969 simply posted a gif of that, that moment, which every time that you see it, it just makes you realise how well crafted that scene was. It's that slow crawl down the corridor and then a quick zoom in. As like the yeah, figure yeah, just Oh, it's brilliant. Stevie's recommended that we get it on the deep dive and I've added it to the list for a future episode. Uh, Scott Ballantyne said, the scene in Goodfellas where Jimmy tries to get Karen to go into an empty warehouse to pick out some furs. And yes, yes, and thrice yes. That's a great choice. That mm. whole scene is so disturbing and upsetting because De Niro doesn't convey menace. He's calm reassuring and friendly throughout it and that's what makes it even scarier is that it's it's someone can be really nice and look like they're doing you a favor when they're really trying to kill you absolutely terrifying and to know that it's all drawn from a true story as well adds that extra chill to it kelly at pixie dust star trek wrath of khan the whole bug ear scene um okay which was missing out of some cuts if i remember yeah uh, and I think what makes that one stand out even more is when it goes for the close-up zoom shot and the little, like, tiny insect animatronic, like, flicks out, like, a razor-sharp tongue. And it's just like, ah, that's a unnecessary extra. Freaks you out. I remember seeing that when I was young and just going, that's not right. Also, Night of the Living Dead was about four years old <laughs> when she watched it. That should have been the answer for last week's stuff that you shouldn't shouldn't have watched when because you were far too young. <laughs> and poltergeist around the same age obviously uh freaked her out <laughs> four years old i mean I, th I thought i was i thought i jumped onto horror at an early age but wow that's really young over on mastodon chris f who's at silent fp the wheelchair coming down the stairs in the changeling yep i've got a vague recollection of that yeah, that's great film changeling in a while. yeah john who's at uk film nerd Watching Alien when I was far too young, the chestburster scene pretty much killed it for me. I had to stop not long after that scene. And never, we'll never forget the scene from the original Chainsaw Massacre where he hangs the girl onto the meat hooks. That just does Ooh, something to me inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think with Ch the original Texas Chainsaw, it's notorious for being bloody and brutal, but it's not. But it's the manner in which it shows it's not all the horror. It? And it's the, the how he hangs her on it. It's his nonchalance in how he hangs her on yeah. there. 
It's not done in a grotesque, over the top way. It's just like you're just a piece of flesh. Boom. And uh, it's like when he like when he first steps out from underneath the stairs and bludgeons, and it's just done so simply without over the top dramatics. That's what makes everything in the original Texas Chainsaw much more scary than any of the sequels or remakes could ever do because they always try to ramp it up. Echea, who's at Teratogenes, Ring or Ringu's opening scene, just the two young ladies talking about a cursed VHS leading to that one shot. And yeah, I mean, it's the build up to that that makes it as one of those scenes that sits with you ever since. And via Spotify, Stephen Young sculptor said, when the Grand High Witch begins to remove her face mask in the 90s, witches gave him nightmares. Not even a horror. Oh, yeah, just yeah, Angelica Houston's second best role after Morticia Adams. And yeah, I'll agree with you there. Agree with you there entirely, Stephen. And that pretty much rounds it up. Um, aside from what my, my ones that I've racked my brain this week on this one. I've really racked my brain. Now, sticking with the theme of that, that last one, which was Ringo, for me, it's the grudge. And the, you know, the, the original version of the grudge is particular yeah. for so much nightmare candy for me. From the kid sat in a cupboard to the unnatural way that someone can crawl downstairs, which when I watched that for the first time in pitch black darkness on my own in the house, I was freaked out. I could not, I couldn't get out from underneath the blanket at the end of the film to put the lights on. I was like, this is where I live now. <laughs> I'm not moving. <laughs> I need a bucket to urinate into. I was a wreck. Um, in non-horror, I mean, some people try to say that things like this are horror, but I don't think that Michael Mann's Manhunter is particularly a horror. The wheelchair on fire from Manhunter. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing that and that kind of tipped me into, man, that's intense into that that state of mind it's that's an image that the first time that i watched it that stayed with me ever since in music videos michael jackson turning to the camera at the end of thriller the rest of thriller the start of that i remember when there was a big hoo-ha when that got launched because you had to tune in at like 10 p.m on itv to watch it for the first time and his transformation at the beginning didn't bother me his transformation to a zombie halfway through to start dancing didn't bother me but it's that very last shot where he turns around and he's got the piercing yellow eyes as the ha 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 goes wow that freaked me that that was it i was done superman 3 vera being roboticized nightmare fuel really completely. yeah wow that, I mean, that that really like terrified me at an early age and it it's made i mean there's other reasons that, that I don't go back to watch Superman 3, i.e. <laughs> it's, it's a bit rubbish. But that put me off wanting to revisit that film for so many years. And I'm sure that a lot of people will agree with me on this one. Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory, The Boat Ride. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. I can see that. It was basically an avant-garde art, art piece for three minutes with Gene Wilder reciting a poem in more escalating, terrifying nature, while weird, disturbing images played out around him. I don't know what he was doing in that film, but boy, I'm glad it is, because it's given me so much nightmare fuel for the rest of my life. Well, I'm going to go with with a non-horror film for one of those intense scenes that stayed with me, and that's in Brian De Palma's Scarface. Do you remember the scene where they're in the bathroom with the chainsaw? Oh, yeah. That, that had me sort of fingers digging into the sofa. And for horror, I mean, the exorcist head turning round bit. It's one of those scenes that, that always yeah. will always stay with me. 
have you ever seen a film called Martyrs? I've never seen Martyrs. I've heard probably, a lot about probably it. Probably best that you don't. It was part of that new French extreme filmmaking, and uh, it's yeah. never a film that I will ever go back to. Put it that way. Right. I'll I'll noted. So you want it on the deep dive then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're doing that one on your own. Oh, I'm doing that one from memory. So thank you as ever for dropping in your answers and. Uh, uh, I'm glad we probably scared you to death as you've been thinking about those scenes which have, have, have lasted with you. What's our question for this week? This week's question is a bit of a gamble. And it's kind of, I know what I mean. Um, uh, and uh, one of the answers in, in this week's uh, uh, question sort of reminded me of it. Is there a film which you kind of half remember, but you, you've got no idea what it is? So you, you you've got a scene where there's a kid playing video games and then he goes into space, but you, you're not sure what the movie was. It's one of those. What's that film that you kind of half remember, but you can only describe the film I was talking about was last Starfighter, by the mm. way. Um, but uh, you know, when you, you saw it, you went, you might've seen it late night television or as a kid, or you've just been uh, popping channels and there's a movie that you started uh, watching and for the life of you, you, don't know what it is now clearly you're not going to give us uh, the title unless you manage to track it down but there might be something that you remember about it uh, let us know particularly if it's um one of those films that everyone who you've spoken to about what you remember have looked at you with a blank face as though you're making something up yeah i've, I've used the example where scott from work has before now started saying he, he's never found anyone who's seen this film and he thinks he might have dreamt it and he started saying like there's a goblin kind of thing that lives in a wall and it's stealing the the breath Ooh, cat's eyes. little girl and yeah i just straight away jumped onto cat's eye stephen king short stories all combined it was like what you've seen it was like yeah it was just like you're the only person in the world that i know that i've ever encountered who knows what it is and um, i've got one but i'll save it for next week okay uh, as my answer because straight off the top of my head i've got one that i've been trying to seek ever since i caught it in the early hours of the morning as a student anyway um if you want to Share your, yeah, it might be films that you don't know the title of. It might be ones that you actually know a title of, but you've never been able to find it either. So you're convinced that you've made it up. <laughs> Head over to social media, follow us. Film File UK is what you're looking for. Respond to the question there. You can answer it via Spotify. Just the question will be down below in the show description. Just pop as your answer there. Or fire us an email, podcast at filmfile.uk. We'd love to hear these ones because I'd be particularly more impressed, not only if we can manage to work out what some of these films are from vague descriptions, but if we get some that we are all baffled with and we genuinely think that people are going mad and making films up. (laughs) Did you see it or did you dream it? That could be the the title for this week's question. (laughs) Right. That leads us quite nicely into what is happening on this week's show. Well, we've got for you a deep dive. And you know how much we are fans, big fans of Shane Black. And he's been biting at the bit to do this one. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to be talking about the nice guys. We have reviews of Bottoms, which releases at cinemas in the coming week. Five Nights at Freddy's, which released last week. And a Sky original, Retribution. That wouldn't have Liam Neeson in by any chance, would it? Funnily enough, I think you might be right there. Before that, we've got. This week's box office, we've got the news. So, is Taylor Swift still strutting her stuff in the number one position? Or has uh, 
Five Nights at Freddy made its way to the number one spot. So it's all been about Five Nights at Freddy's this week. It's opened in the US on 80 million over the opening weekend. Taylor Swift dropped into second place, still taking 15.4 million to add on to its worldwide total to date of 203 million. Killers of the Flower Moon is in third place, a 61% drop off on last week with only 9.3 million taken. After Death is in fourth place and The Exorcist Believer holds fifth place with 3.3 million. Here in the UK, again, Five Nights at Freddy's takes the top spot, taking 5.3 million. This is the highest opening for a horror title this year in the UK, ahead of Scream 6, which took 3 million. Trolls Band Together is in second place with 2.5 million this weekend. Killers of the Flower Moon in third place, taking another 1.5 million to its total. Taylor Swift in fourth place, another 1.2 million. And Paw Patrol, the mighty movie, in fifth place, scraping up another 709 million to add on to its total in the UK so far. So Five Nights at Freddy's is the big success this weekend. It's been a phenomenal success for Blumhouse. It's definitely tapped into the audience, particularly in the US where it hasn't got a more restrictive rating. In the UK, it's got a 15. So a lot of the audience that we've seen, we've had to turn quite a few people away because they've not been old enough to see it. In the US, it's a PG-13, which means the kids have been lapping it up. Broken box office records for Halloween weekend's best box office in the US. It was destined to be a success. Whether it's any good or not, wait until later in the show and I'll tell you. So let's move on to the news. And of course, we've got to start with some strike news. Andy, do we know, has there been any movement or are we still in stalemate? Right. Well, as we are recording right now, there are still talks going on between SAG-AFTRA and the AMPTP in order to try to resolve it. They were talking through this week and they've decided to continue the talks over this weekend. So it's hoped that a potential deal will be really reached in the coming days. We saw this exact same thing happen towards the end of the Writers Guild strike, that the talks started going well and then carried over the weekend. And then we got a resolution by the Wednesday. So we're all keeping our fingers crossed at the moment. The two parties resumed their talks earlier this week and Tuesday. And according to Deadline, everyone is aware of the stakes at this juncture. The negotiations have reportedly been very serious, but very cordial at the same time. Both sides have incentives and pressures to get the deal done soon, and they're both trying to avoid another breakdown in talks. The striking points are still the same issues that they've been stuck on since day one. Uh, Success-based compensation and AI, but it looks like that there's been some movement on both sides. Previous SAG-AFTRA wanted 11% minimum rates increase, and the studios were only offering 5%. Those numbers have now changed to 9% and 7%. So it it looks like an 8% is going to get agreed on at the end because they're getting closer to a middle ground. There's a sense that if no deal is reached in the next few weeks prior to Thanksgiving, then pretty much all the current TV seasons will be off the table and can't be salvaged. And Hollywood TV and feature film production across the first half of 2024 will essentially be written off. So that's why it's very urgent for them to see if they can resolve it all this week because they've only got a few more weeks before they hit that cutoff point where basically the industry goes into a, a, a stalemate for the next six months. So obviously with everything that's been going on with the um, actor strike, it's causing various delays of films. We reported on a couple over the past few weeks. There's been a few more that have been announced now. Now, a couple of shock ones that weren't expected to shift. The new Snow White film with Rachel Zegler has now moved from March 2024 to March 2025. Pixar's Elio has also been shifted by over a year. It was originally supposed to be coming out March the 1st, 2024, just in time for my birthday. A Pixar film for my birthday would have been amazing. 
I've now oh, got to wait until. But they've moved it to June the 13th, 2025, which isn't even my birthday. So it's dead to me. That now means that Inside Out 2 on June the 14th, 2024 is the next Pixar film. Universal Pictures and Blumhouse have set June the 27th, 2025 release date for the Black Phone sequel. Specifics about the story are all hush-hush at the moment. Barry Levinson's Wise Guys, which is the Robert Nadero starring film, has been delayed from February the 2nd, 2024 to November the 14th, 2024. The start of next year is getting emptier and emptier week on week. And finally, Disney has completely pulled the Jonathan Majors-led bodybuilder drama Magazine Dreams from its December the 8th release. There's no release date added to that. This has come only a few days after Majors has been basically told, no, the charges aren't going to get overruled in the ongoing case against him, and he will be expected to have court attendances. And the biggest release date change that upset me, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 2 has moved from next summer to summer 2025. We've got to wait an extra oh, really? year for more Tom Cruise. Oh, my goodness. At the same time, it's now dropping the subtitle of Dead Reckoning Part 2 to be given a different name, which will be confirmed closer to the release date. So that means that if you've got a DVD collection or a Blu-ray collection, UHD, and you're one of these sticklers for something to look right, you will end up having Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and never have Part 2 to go with it unless they do. And please, please, please pay attention, studios. If you do this kind of thing and mess up our physical collections, give us reversible inlays so we can have Dead Reckoning Part 2 or we can have the new title. Let's do it. Let's champion this because I don't want to have to buy a different box set again. So, Andy, I'm going to make you happy now. It, hey. way, way, way back in uh, 2021, we heard the first plans that uh, Henry Cavill, he of Superman fame, was to star in a new Highlander movie. And we know that the franchise has been on and off for, for many, many years. There's been uh, Ryan Reynolds was connected to a version. There have been reboots mentioned galore. Last time we mentioned it, Chad Stahelski confirmed that uh, he was going to be the director. Anyway, it looks like it's going to happen. Yeah, after all this time, it's said that it is going to move forward. The latest draft of the screenplay was written by Mike Finch. Stahelski himself written, I think we have some very good elements now. The trick is when you see the tagline, there can be only one. You just can't kill everybody the first time so i'll say it for you but our story engages a lot of the same characters and stuff like that it feels like it's going to happen it's looking as though it's a possibility never say never but it's looking now cavill has put superman and Geralt behind him that highlander is seemingly on the cards yes and um, the, the film is said to be costing north of 100 million for a highlander film Stelsky with Cavill, I would have loved Ryan Reynolds to be in the role for personal reasons. But Cavill, I, I can't wait to see him donning a kilt and wielding a sword because I, th I think that's perfect, perfect melding of person on screen to person behind the cameras. Looking forward to this. They're hoping to start production sometime in early 2024. They're shipping it around for launching sales of the film at the AFM next month. Um, but Lionsgate are giving it a big thumbs up as a main a main project that they're determined to go ahead with. In other, hey, remember when there was that film that everyone loved when you were young and uh, we, we need a remake of it? Well, yeah. Edgar Wright's directed remake of The Running Man is aiming to build, begin filming next year. 
yeah, I'd heard about this and uh, I'd not seen much, because hey, we've not reported it as such. But yeah, it looks like it's it's pretty much on. And from what I'm gathering, it's staying a lot closer this time to the Stephen King original. Yes. I mean, the book was penned under the pseudonym Richard Bachman back in 1982. And it was very loosely adapted to the screen with Arnold Schwarzenegger in it. Producers on the project include Simon Kinberg, Neva Park and Audrey Chon. And Simon Kinberg this week spoke with Slash Film and explained where things stand. In his words, we are working on it actively. He, talking about Edgar Wright, is actively working on the script with Michael Bacall. Our hope would be that it's a movie that, again, all fingers crossed and look and everything goes our way that Edgar could maybe direct next year. What's cool is that Edgar, completely separately before myself and Paramount started down the journey of figuring out how to get the remake rights, which was complicated, he tweeted just on his own that if there was one movie he would love to remake ever, it was The Running Man. So it was like, it was the perfect cohesion to bring him on board the project. This will be Edgar Wright's first film since 2021's Last Night in Soho and 2017's Baby Driver. And I am well and truly down for a more, more faithful adaptation of that story from Richard Bachman, a.k.a. Stephen King, because as much as I enjoy what Arnie's film did, it wasn't The Running Man. I'm jumping into the realm of TV now, but I'm going to give you something to do with comics. I'm going to be talking about DC. So everything has been a little bit up in the air with the writer strike. Superman Legacy is still expected to be released in 2025. However, it was on and then it was off and then it was rewritten. And that's the Lanterns based on the Green Lanterns. So according to rumours, Ozark showrunner Chris Mundy, who was also a writer and producer for Criminal Minds, has been tapped as the series showrunner. Uh, and we'd been hearing this rumour for some time that Hal Jordan is going to be much older and the title character is going to be Jon Stewart, uh, who will be likely in his 20s. There's also, you can take it with a pinch of salt, head over to uh, Pinch of Salt Corner, uh, a proposed The Question TV series. Apparently that's in development. Heard nothing more about this. I would like to see this because uh, The Question, especially when written by Denny O'Neill and drawn by Dennis Cowan, was one of my favourite 80s comic books. I loved it. It would make a great TV series. Meanwhile, over at Marvel, uh, we re revealed a few weeks ago that apparently Marvel TV shows didn't have showrunners, which was a bit of a jaw-dropping moment. Well, one of the troubled shows that halted production and they decided to completely rejig things is Daredevil Born Again. And it now has an actual showrunner, not a chief writer, a showrunner. Dario Scardapane, who gave us Tom Clancy's Jack Ryan and Netflix as The Punisher, is stepped in as the showrunner for Daredevil Born Again as part of the full creative overhaul that Marvel TV studios are working on. In addition, Synchronic and the Endless filmmakers Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead, hot off success directing episodes of the current season of Loki that we are absolutely loving. They've been hired to direct all the remaining Daredevil episodes for the rest of the season. Once they've finished working out how they're going to retool what's already been shot into new footage for what the new story will be. It's going to be interesting to see whether this works They've got a situation here where it could end up being that this season of Daredevil feels like it's a hodgepodge of other people's ideas all bashed together. But if they do it right, and now they've got a showrunner on board, hopefully they can. We could be in for something which is a new direction for the Marvel Universe, which I think is what we're needing. Yeah, a bit of a, a fresh take. We mentioned it last week that apparently 
Ridley Scott had given a thumbs up to Fede Alvarez's new Alien film, uh, which is, again, take it with a pinch of salt. It's been known as Alien Romulus. That's not quite official at this time. And this week we've got some news on showrunner Noah Hawley and his Alien TV series, which is about the Xenomorphs being on Earth and how he's approaching to do that. Noah Hawley, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're aware of his work, it was the showrunner on Legion. Fantastic interpretation of one of the best, Legion. actually, TV uh, comic adaptations. Uh, and say it was set in the X-verse would really well and of course he's also the showrunner on the magnificent Fargo TV series which has now got a, its latest series out. He's revealed yeah. uh, that the show as was announced will be set on Earth in the not too distant future and he says that look a two hour movie you can set up and then it's just about are they going to survive but in this when you're making a series you can't rely on are they going to survive to be sustained over 10 episodes. So with uh, even with the best action horror movie on te on television, you still have 40% of what are we talking about? I've had some conversations early with Peter Rice, who used to run all of the television at Fox. Then the series went to Disney. And the thing with Alien is it's always trapped in a spaceship, trapped in a prison. But what if it wasn't? What is the moment on Earth, technology-wise, and where are we? And the question science fiction always tends to ask is, does humanity deserve to survive i'm absolutely in because i think noah hawley is is a unique tv voice and yeah you can't do who's going to make it and who's not on a tv show over a, a space of 10 episodes so we've got to get some kind of interesting drama into it looking forward to it no matter what noah hawley I, i've enjoyed pretty much everything that he's brought us so it same way as Freddy alvarez doing like the big screen adaptation i like what he does film wise Noah Hawley, I love what he does TV series-wise. He knows how to really play with ideas. Legion is just a masterpiece of TV. Um, yeah. If anyone out there has never seen Legion, do yourself a favour and just treat yourself to what is creative, experimental, and absolutely compelling three seasons. Well worth checking out. And in, in the other subject of things that are being adapted to TV series that we've already seen some kind of adaptations of, the Dragon Tattoo series is going ahead with a TV adaptation for Amazon and MGM Studios. Uh, Canadian-born American writer, director, producer, Vina Sood has been hired to be showrunner on a new TV series based on Steve Larson's novel, The Girl with a Dragon Tattoo, and the sequels. Uh, this was first reported as being developed back in May 2020, and it's going to unfold in the world of the Millennium novels from the late Larson. Back in 2020, it was tipped to be a new standalone story about the novel's main character, Elizabeth Salander, but at this point in time, it's looking like it might actually be a Hannibal-esque kind of retelling where it will lead into elements that we've already seen from the already released films or book series. More news on this as it happens, but I'm very interested. I enjoyed the uh, Swedish films with Numi Rapis yeah. as Salander. Absolutely I enjoyed brilliant. Fincher's film. And I thought that what Fincher did was he perfectly readapted the book he didn't copy the original film he readapted the book and added added elements that were missing on the first adaptation there's always a, something that you can do we, we won't talk about the girl and the spider's web the low budget sequel i, I never saw it we'll forget about that one but if they can get back to even just being half as good as either fincher's or the swedish version where 
I'm, I'm well and truly down for this as a TV series. And I think a TV series will give it chance to breathe. Yeah. I think it's a story that if you give it chance to breathe, you could really do something with it. Like I say, I'd like to have the comparisons with Hannibal. If they can Hannibalize this, I'm all over it. It seems, and you can put this in Pinch of Salt Corner, but there is going to be a Sicario 3. And the producers are saying that the threequel will bring back Emily Blunt's character. So the cartel catching epic, which is Sicario. And again, if you've not seen it, well worth, well worth seeing the first film. The second film, uh, Day of the Salado, Salado is, is good, but it's, it'd be even better if we get to see Emily Blunt repeating her role, which made her, for me, just go through the roof of what a great actor she is. If they can get um, Deakins back as cinematographer as well, that will be the icing on the delicious cake, yep. basically, won't it? Sam Rockwell, who we love. Uh, we love in everything that he does. And Kamal Nanjiani have both closed deals to star in a dark comedy called A Guy Walks Into a Bar, which comes from director Gary Felder, who gave us Runaway Jury. Um, Scott Rosenberg penned the film about a mild-mannered new father, played by Nanjiani, who befriends a charismatic yet mysterious man, Rockwell. I mean, of course, if you say charismatic yet mysterious, of course, Sam Rockwell's got that role in a bar and soon suspects him of concealing a troubling secret. It's got an interim agreement from SAG-AFTRA so it can go into production. It can be worked on before the end of this year, even though the actor strike is going on. And they're hoping to start production in New Jersey within the next month. Felder and Rosenberg previously collaborated on cult film Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead. And both of them oh, I love that film so much. It speaks that this is going to like have that kind of feel as well. Yeah. So, you know, Sam Rockwell, always one that we keep a look out for. This could be a great project to watch out for sometime in 2024. So a couple of bits of quick news. Filmmaker Martin Scorsese has officially joined Letterboxd. So all those people who are logging your reviews and everything on Letterboxd, search for Martin Scorsese. You'll know it's him because he's got the bio, bio just saying this is cinema. Of course he has. What he's going to use it for is going to be interesting. But at the moment, he's logged around 70 films he's seen and kind of catalogued. These are the films that inspired him kind of things. Stuff like Night of the Hunter, Close Up, On the Waterfront, Wild Bunch, Rafifi, Red River, The Day of the Jackal, The Leopard, The Heiress. Basically, if you want to know what films over all the century and a half of cinema that there's been, you should be checking out. Follow Martin Scorsese on Letterboxd. Whatever he posts on there, give it a watch. I don't think he's going to be reviewing any of the Marvel films anytime soon. But you know what? <laughs> That's not what we want from him. We just want him to just be himself. Fantastic Beasts is on hold. Yeah, I wouldn't put any money on that ever seeing the light of day again. I think it's it's time has come. Yeah, well, there's been a... Because they, they've said it's been parked. They got to the end of the third film and they're so proud of that movie. And then it went out into the world and they needed to stop and pause and take it easy. Now, rumours around it say that the studio never wanted more than three films. They only wanted three. It was J.K. Rowling who insisted that it has to be five. And now the studio basically going, you know what? We're done. You can leave it hanging. We're not completing this story. Not in a rush to complete it. Let it go. And the Doctor Who specials that we've been waiting for. Oh, yeah. We now have dates. We do. Uh, the, fir the first of them, the Star Beast premieres on November the 25th, which will be followed by Wild Blue Yonder on December the 2nd and The Giggle on December the 9th. All of them will premiere on BBC in the UK and Disney Plus everywhere else in the world. So that, you can all that watch new it trailer. Have you seen it? Yes. And you can see see where the money is. 
see where it's been spent, and it just makes it look epic. Can't wait. Yes. Absolutely cannot wait. Absolutely. We've got a other couple of trailers which have dropped over the last week. I like the look of Catherine Newton falling for a corpse in the new Diablo co-descripted film, Lisa Frankenstein. Yes. Catherine Newton is is my modern day scream queen. Uh, she's great in any of these like tongue in cheek horrors that she's been in. And she was also great in, and I keep saying it, uh, the map of tiny perfect things. Yeah, everyone, that. everyone out there, if you've not seen it, just get it watched. It's it's a beautiful film. You recommended it to me. I watched it, and I I think I contacted you as soon as it finished to go. Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yes. Uh, Gemma Atherton and Nathan Stewart Jarrett are paying for past crimes in the Culprits trailer. Yeah, from director Jake Blakeson. Did you see Jason Isaacs uh, channeling uh, Cary Grant in the biodrama Archie? I've you not seen that one. You couldn't take your eyes off him. There's an exclusive couple of looks out there. It looks very, very cool. Jason Isaac's one of those actors, and whenever he pops up in anything, it just remarkably holds it all together. He's great in everything. That kind of leads us towards the end. But we, we really do hate having to do this because it, it is so, so sad when you get tragic news like you've had over the last week. Of course, you're going to be aware of the passing of Matthew Perry, which came as an absolute shock to everybody. Now, it was interesting because uh, uh, it was a late night and there was something online about Matthew Perry passing away, but couldn't find anything in any of the mainstream media until this morning. I thought it was going to be one of those odd situations where there would be a, a tweet going out saying, I'm, I'm actually um, still alive. But sadly not. I've been all over the radio this morning talking about Matthew Perry. And I'm sure over the next week, I'll be talking even more so about him. But he did come as a real shock. And the, the 54-year-old actor, best known for friends, of course, as Chandler Bing, uh, suddenly left us. Yeah, he reportedly drowned in his jacuzzi um, last night at his Los Angeles home, which his last posting on Instagram before he was found was of him sat in his jacuzzi, like just loving life. This was a, a kind of shock news because I was still up in the early hours of the morning when all this news broke. And so we added it on to today. And we, this is the kind of news that we don't want to add in at the last minute. And law enforcement sources say that the first responders rushed over on a call for cardiac arrest. And Perry was found in the jacuzzi at his house with no drugs found at the scene. As long with friends. I mean, he's, he's well known for friends. But he did have a spurt at Post Friends where he, he kind of had like a run of films, things like the whole nine yards and 17s again and fools rushing, but he never kind of gained momentum away from friends. He has popped up in some great shows. He's been in Beverly Hills, Beverly Hills 90210, Ali McBeal, The West Wing. And I believe you've got a lot of love for Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. I loved Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. Uh, it never made it past one season uh, written by Adam Sorkin. Uh, which of course I'm gonna gonna love it, but it had Matthew Perry and the great Bradley Whitford as showrunners on a uh, a late night live TV comedy, very very similar in nature to Saturday Night Live. Fantastic, came out in uh, 2006. Deserved to go on much much longer. Um, and of course uh, they worked together. They worked together on The West Wing, as you mentioned, which he was Emmy nominated for. He did work again in TV with a reboot of The Odd Couple, and starred alongside Bruce Willis in The Whole Nine Yards. Ooh. 
Perry released a memoir last year, which went into his personal battles, which are what kind of held him off from really gaining momentum post Friends and becoming the big star that someone with his looks, charm and personality should have managed to get to. Um, he had ongoing issues with health and also with addictions, which he'd managed to sort out in recent history. But he never really got that momentum back. But it's a real sad loss. And there's a lot of people heartbroken around the world. People who've worked with him, people who grew up watching him, people who are watching him on Friends now for the first time. It's impacted on so many generations. For all the joy that he's brought everyone in the world, we've got all that to remember him by. Sad loss and 54 is no age to leave. The other sad passing this week was of an icon from a different age. Uh, the man who basically gave us the black exploitation core, uh, and that was Richard Roundtree. He who was the original Shaft. Yes, he passed away this week after a brief battle with pancreatic cancer at the age of 81. His first starring role, Who? there's not many actors who their very first role becomes their biggest and most impactful one. But with his first starring role as John Shaft, who then went on to star in a few other sequels over the years, including some of the more modern ones uh, yeah. when he's popped up, he just exhumed cool. Shaft as a character was just so cool. And he was an icon of the 70s. And for those of us who grew up jumping onto those films in later years, he was an icon to all of us. He was that essence of what black exploitation was. It wasn't just black exploitation actor. He did pop up in quite a lot of other things. And you will have seen him in things such as David Fincher's Seven, George of the Jungle showing some comedy chops. I, I love him when he pops up in Speed Racer. There's Amateurville, a new oh, generation. Yes, I forgot about that. There's <laughs> Steel, City Heat, What Men Want. On television, he was in the 1977 miniseries Roots. He's also been in Heroes, Diary of a Single Mom, Generation, Chicago Fire. He's been everywhere. Every time he stepped on screen, yes, you would instantly go, oh, that shaft. But then he became whatever character he was. He was an icon. He was a legend of the screen. And he will always be fondly remembered. And finally, Andy. And finally. Now, this is one that won't be really well known to people in such a way as Richard Roundtree and Matthew Perry. But we also lost Richard Mole this week. Who's he? Well, you'll have seen him in films because you can't miss him. He's six foot eight and he had a very distinctive voice. And he popped up in films such as The Flintstones, But I'm a Cheerleader, Jingle All the Way, Scary Movie 2, Night Train to Terror, Dutch. He also on TV was in things such as the Highlander TV series. The Rockford Files, Dukes of Hazard, Babylon 5, TJ Hooker, The Fall Guy, Remington Steel, Fantasy Island. However, I remember him more for his character voice acting that he did, particularly across the Batman the Animated Series, where he, he provided the voice for quite a few characters over the run of it and all the, all the modern Batman animated shows that there's been. He's also provided voices. But his voice that he lent to the Harvey Dent Two-Face was the one that stood out. That's how I latched on to Richard Mull. You will recognise him if you see him on films uh, because, like I say, six foot eight, they stand out. But he's passed away age 80, apparently dying peacefully on Thursday night in his home at Big Bear Lake. Um, he was married and divorced twice. He's survived by his children, Chloe and Mason, and his stepchildren, Cassandra and Morgan. And uh, for those of us who are geeky, 
and fans of comic books and particularly animated services. This was a bit of a sad passing. Our American listeners will will really know Richard Mall from a, a series called Night Court, which didn't get much of a showing here in the UK. I saw it in my days living in the States. Uh, and again, uh, it was uh, iconic to that series. But exactly like Andy, he'll always be the voice of Harvey Dent to me. And that, folks, that's the news. This is the Film File, the film show for film geeks by film geeks. And if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the show. Please leave a like and please subscribe and please tell your friends. Let's build up our listeners. Do your best. Uh, you can be our secret army out there just pushing the film file. You can also get in touch with us. Don't forget, um, head over to social media platforms, search for Film File UK. There we are. Or you can email us, podcast at filmfile.uk. We love to hear from any of you guys about anything. You got something you want us to mention on the show? Get in touch. You got something you want us to watch? Get in touch. You got something you want us to try to find out what it's called? Get in touch. And don't forget, as an exclusive offer to our listeners, you can pick up a copy of Harvey Morton's inspirational book, Succeeding as a Young Entrepreneur, with a whopping 25% discount. In the book, Harvey shares his inspirational journey from an early life of being bullied at school and being told by teachers that he would never succeed, only to go on to win business awards at the age of 14 and continue his success through perseverance and determination, working with well-known brands including Sheffield Hallam University and Santander and the BBC. Harvey's tale is an inspiration to us all and he shares the secret to his success in this new book. Head over to eurospanbookstore.com, search for Harvey Morton, and apply the code FILMFILE25 at checkout to get a whopping 25% off. And now it's time for this week's Deep Dive. Dive, dive, dive. Yes, this week's Deep Dive is one of our favourite and probably geekiest of film writers and directors. It's Shane Black. And it is the nice guys. My profession is very complicated. That's a lot of blood. What the hell's going on? There's a guy coming to kill us. Look at the bright side. Nobody got hurt. People got hurt. They died quickly, though. I don't think that they got hurt. The nice guy. It came out in 2016, directed and written by Shane Black. The film stars Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe. Set in 1977, Los Angeles, the film focuses on Private Eye, Holland March, played by Gosling, and tough enforcer for hire, Jackson Healy, played by Russell Crowe. And in perfect Shane Black style, the two team up to investigate the disappearance of a teenage girl. This film has all the traits of everything that you like about Shane Black. Smart whip dialogue, buddy movie, two very charismatic leading men, some ultraviolence, plenty of laughs, plenty of action what's not to like and i know for a fact andy you like this one as much as i do yes uh, did we watch this together uh, as... i i think we did i think, I think... we did way back in uh, in 2016 both of us were were fans of shane black we like what he's done and previous to this he did kiss kiss bang bang which is another um, great film and we went into this because it looked very kiss kiss bang bang and it very much is it's like a spiritual sister of Kiss Kiss Bang Bang because it follows the same kind of themes with like, you know, people investigating stuff, coming together, investigating the same thing and not necessarily getting on, but having that Shane Black banter 
that slowly builds into some kind of friendship and camaraderie, whilst the stumbling and bumbling around. And this is what Shane Black does so well. And it's just such a shame that this film wasn't a success at the box office because it would have been nice to see him tap into this kind of things. It, of course, it looks it's very similar in style to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang because Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Where You Find Them. And this was inspired by Brett Halliday's novel, Blue Murder. So there was a lot of ideas and concepts coming from the same author. Not direct adaptations, but it was more just both of them were just like, Shane Black's a big fan of these pulpy novels and decided I want to do something pulp. The period setting of the 70s, I think, is what really helps this film yeah. work. And I know that they went through a various iterations before they settled on the 70s because it was going to be set contemporary. It was going to be a TV series at one point. CBS showed an interest in picking it up. Black <laughs> thought about it, uh, wrote a 64-page version that would serve as the pilot. but. Blackwood later, upon promoting the release of the final film, spoke, well, disparagingly of the idea of a TV yeah. series, stating that such a show wouldn't have been any good. So he joined yeah, up he... with his producer, Joel Silver, who was initially aware of the idea that he felt the audience wouldn't be welcome into a period piece, but changed mm -hmm. his mind after producing Sherlock Holmes back in 2009. Uh, and Black stated the change in the time period helped as in contrast to the divisiveness that we see now. Yeah, I think a TV show now through one of the streaming networks yeah. could be better. But it's the fact that CBS was never going to allow most of this content in a show. And that's why they kind of balked at the idea. And that's why Shane Black basically went that it's not going to work as TV and it would have been garbage because they would have restricted him too much. They would have told him, you can't have that. You can't have this. You can't have that. And without everything that's in this film, it wouldn't feel the same. It's just a fun, great film. It's a, it's a great little mystery because it's all about the death of a porn star called Misty Mountains and the, the breadcrumbs of clues that lead into such some other huge conspiracy that's going on. And it's how it plays out as a mystery. For those of us who like a murder mystery and also like a conspiracy theory mystery film, there's enough in there. But then you've got two great central performances from people who aren't generally known for comical performances they're known for dramatic ones they're known for action films but both of them ryan gosling and russell crowe they jumped at the opportunity to a make this film because it was so funny at the scripting stage and b work together because they both loved each other's works and just wanted the opportunity to bond on set and get to know each other and, and they tell. work so well don't they i mean they are there are that magic that happens in a great buddy movie. I, I'm a sucker for good buddy movies, whether it's Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, uh, Lethal Weapon, or the uh, Terence Hill and Bud Spencer. I love a buddy film, and and this is what what was my into it. Yes, it's Shane Black who is always capable of tilting a well worn path and tilting it in a different direction. I mean, he, he did that with uh, Iron Man 3, which is, uh, I, I think, Ooh. hugely underrated. But he, he manages to take the crime thriller and just do something fresh with it. And and that's what I like. It's it's funny. It's got some great action sequences. And it's and it's dialogue and is, is what makes it, makes it jump out. Yeah, the dialogue between it is snappy. It's punchy. It's witty. It's the kind of dialogue as well that revisits of this film 
opens your eyes to some exchanges that you didn't quite take the context of the first time round, and you can enjoy it and be amused by something that seems new because you missed it the first time. Ryan Gosling in this, his comic timing is absolutely nailed to perfection and his pratfalls are some of the best pratfalls in modern cinema that you'll ever see particularly at falling backwards over the wall and down the hill uh, the, the guy has just got uh, is his expression whenever he's falling or getting punched is his reactions to things everything is conveyed in such a good way that this person who you t- tended to think at the time for things like place beyond the pines and other such serious dramas showcasing such a natural flair for comic timing and ability. He can do anything. And it, it's why, like, when he got cast in the Barbie movie, and people went, well, he looks good, but will he, is he funny? It's like, you guys clearly didn't watch this film. Everyone should watch The Nice Guys simply just to see why Ryan Gosling keeps getting linked to comedic roles ever since, because he's so, so good. Russell Crowe, is, he's, he's the muscles. He's the bull. And he beefed himself up for the role because he wanted to make sure that if he was going to be someone who goes around breaking people's arms for a living, he needs to look like he could handle himself in a fight. And the pair of them play off each other well. They're both contrasting in nature, kind of working towards the same thing and so forced to work together before realising that they actually kind of enjoy working together. They clearly are having a great time and that, that shows... Uh, and that respect, and, and and you know, it's always sad when you hear of, of movie stars and you think they had a have chemistry, and 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 they don't. But these two really, really do. They really play off each other wonderfully, and and that's down to to Black's very tight and funny script. In addition, you've got the third part of the investigative team, which is Holly, played by the young Angry Rice, who child actors in films usually a bit of a struggle, aren't they? But Shane Black has a great way of writing child characters to not actually feel like the children. And he play, yeah, he, he always has this wisecracking, like, cocky child. Even in Iron Man 3, there was a wisecracking, cocky child. And it works in Shane Black ones because she's the serious one. She's the one who's helping these bumbling idiots uncover what's going on. And she really balances the whole trio of them, because even though it's called the nice guys, it should be the nice guys and her, um, because she is so essential to how the story plays out. She's there for the peril. She's there to have that little latch of attachment of the characters. But it's her interplay. I, I love when she confronts uh, Russell Crowe's character of like, aren't you the guy who beat up my dad? It's like, sucker punched. <laughs> and it, it's just a great, feel-good, fun film about murder. We should have had sequels to this movie because at the end of it, uh, spoilers, they formed the Nice Guys Detective Agency. But sadly, the film underperformed. Uh, It was up against some tough competition. Uh, And I think one of the reasons it underperformed is is that we've sadly moved on from this adult kind of action thriller, uh, which which were the films that you and I grew up with in the 80s when you could have uh, wise ass talking leading guys uh with enough gunplay and and some adult themes and uh, and they would do very well the Joel Silver movies of the time sadly we didn't get to see these guys again and it's it's such a shame because i am so invested in having more adventures with with March and Healy 
yeah. If, if it had gone down the TV series route, I think we would have had a moonlighting kind of situation, which could have ran for multiple seasons with that same kind of like love-hate relationship between the pair. I cannot express how much I force this film on as many people as I can. Whenever I find that There's someone's not watched that. The Nice Guys, I'm like, look, I'll find out where it's on. And I, Right, it's over here at the moment. Go home tonight and you need to watch it. Because I think that this is one of those films that was sadly, sadly overlooked by far too many yeah. people who would get a lot from it. You know how I stickler for de detail in backgrounds and sets and things like that? This is a film that pleases me with how much attention to detail there is. It's set in 1977. The Hollywood sign was all dilapidated and weather-worn and damaged at the time because it had never been maintained. And it was re it read basically Hullwood um, because of all the broken letterings. It was the following year that they finally invested money into redoing it. That was in there because the film opens coming over the Hollywood Hills over the broken sign. You've also got a fuel station sign which references the gas rationing that was going on in the US at the time, yeah. where if you were an odd-numbered car, you would get be able to refuel your car on like a Mondays and a Thursdays. If you were an even-numbered car, you could do a different... Because there was a fuel crisis, and so they had to make sure that they couldn't have queues after queues after queues. So they rationed it by your license plate. And there's a nice little thing at the comedy store. The comedy store has Tim Allen in stand-up. Oh, right. I, I didn't notice that one. He'd started his comedy career elsewhere, but then moved to L.A. and became a regular player at the comedy store in the 76 to 78 era. So have it's little bits of detail like that that make me smile because it means that the person who's made the film has put the effort in to make it work right, to make it feel right. And if they've put the effort in, we should put the effort in to watch their film and enjoy it. There's the element of L.A. just being smog ridden as well all the way through because LA was was such a uh, a filthy city airwise and you could if you look at movies back in the day you can you can see this the smog in in the in the skylines and so they they play on that the DOP added a smog filter and it gives that impression all the way through this is a great movie sadly underseen it it didn't do well at the box office it did okay it it broke even but not enough to to garner having uh, a sequel or anything else. And if you haven't seen The Nice Guys, and you know that we're big fans of Shane Black, so we highly, highly recommend it, give it a go. Uh, it's well worth it. You'll have a lot of fun. And you know what? You'll thank us. Andy, where can we find The Nice Guys so they can thank us? Oh, it's so easy to see at the moment, because if you head on to Amazon Prime Video, there it is, part of the subscription. That's where you can get it watched. I guarantee that you'll watch it and then think, I enjoyed that so much, I'm going to buy the Blu-ray. Amazon Prime, give it a shot if you've never seen it. That's our deep dive for this week. We'll be back again with another one next week. So how about some reviews? What have you got? You've been doing all the work this week, Andy. I've got three films to bring to the table this week. I'm going to start off, and I'm calling my three films this week, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. So I'm going okay. to start off with The Good. And that is... Releasing this week in the UK, Bottoms. Could the ugly, untalented gays please report to the principal's office? Guess that's you guys. What's your plan here? Jeff is psychotic. So we teach a bunch of girls how to defend themselves. Adrenaline is flowing. Next thing you know, Isabel and Brittany are kissing us on the mouth. I'll sign off on your period club. Amazing. What? We are literally at the bottom. We have nowhere to go but up. 
won that trophy. Described by director Emma Seligman as a campy queer high school comedy in the vein of Wet Hot American Summer, but more for a Gen Z queer audience. Bottoms focuses on two unpopular best friends, PJ, played by Rachel Sennett, and Josie, played by Io Edebiri, who decide to set up an all-female fight club in the hope of getting closer to other girls and maybe, just maybe, lose their virginities at the same time. However, the little club gets a little bit too popular for the pair, and it draws much more attention to them than they actually expected. And whilst around them, things at their high school get a little crazy. First things first, yes, the director is targeting a Gen Z audience, but rest assured, a Gen X like myself found himself laughing profusely throughout the whole film as it shines a satirical light upon the teen sex comedies that I grew up with in a sharp, witty and perfectly mirrored manner, only with a touch more sensitivity than those earlier films managed. We've seen the basic idea before throughout the decades usually with a bunch of male nerds wanting to get laid while sticking one to the jocks of the school in films such as Porky's, Revenge of the Nerds, American Pie Saga and Superbad. It's a tried and tested formula that felt like the mileage might have worn off in recent years. However, here we have a fresh take that feels similar in approach to more recent films such as Booksmart, whilst joyfully poking funds at the conventions of the genre it's actually contributing to. It also adds in some satirical views on victimisation and some heartfelt observations on the feeling of being an outsider during adolescence. Everything is helped immensely by how wonderfully cast the whole thing is, with a wide array of faces you might recognise from other projects, even if you don't recognise their names, and the marvellous double act of Senate, who you'll recall from Bodies, Bodies, Bodies in recent years, and Edda Beery from The Burr and the more recent Theatre Camp, who have an instantly awkward charm that you can't help but connect with from the start. The dialogue exchanges between the pair are hilarious and heartfelt, and they rarely sell the idea that these are two very close friends who still both feel like outsiders to the world around them. By the time the film gets to the somewhat crazy revelations of a large mystery that's been going on at the school, leading into a wild, over-the-top final act where the girls all get to put their fight club training into practice in a brutal and extremely hilariously funny, over-the-top action sequence. It feels that the film has totally earned the absolute ridiculousness of it all. Bottoms is certainly the funniest film I've sat down with this year, and I relish the chance to revisit again over time. A great entry into the high school comedy genre, which freshens the cliches for a modern audience. Okay, so that's the good, the bad. Based on the video game that is very popular with a young audience, and that's Five Nights at Freddy's. Prepare to have your mind blown. Foxy. Bonnie. Chica. And Freddy. Back in 2014, a point-and-click game came along that caught the interest of a whole generation. In it, you had been assigned to the role of a nighttime security guard at the Freddy Fazbear's Pizza Restaurant, where the animatronic characters come to life at night. The idea was to prevent the twisted robotic menaces from killing you by trapping them via your security panel and monitors. The game spawned a wave of sequels, each adding new elements and lore, as well as a wealth of novels and comic books that expanded it further. In 2015, the film adaptation was announced, and now, eight years later, it's arrived, 
just in time to really ride that wave of popularity that the game had half a decade ago. To those who know the lore of the games that was retroactively added from the third entry onwards, this film draws from that chilling backstory, which I won't reveal here to avoid spoiling it for newcomers who've never played the game. In this film adaptation, Josh Hutcherson plays Mike Schmidt, a security guard who's seeking new employment while struggling to keep custody of his little sister, Abby, played by Piper Rubio, after the loss of their parents. He ends up taking a job as a night watchman at the long-closed pizza restaurant, which the owner still keeps for sentimental reasons. There, he discovers pretty soon that things are a bit off with the place, with the animatronic characters of the restaurant's mascots seemingly having a life of their own. But something else there taps into Mike's dreams of the abduction of his younger brother many years earlier, and it might hold the key to unlocking his memory of what actually happened the day he was taken. Whilst fans of the games are clearly going to lap this up, and indeed, the box office rush this weekend has demonstrated this. For the rest of the audience, this all feels far too familiar, unoriginal, and even bland overall. The film is clearly five years too late in arriving. And in the meantime, we've had films such as Willy's Wonderland and the Banana Splits movie, which have riffed on the exact same ideas, beating this film to the punch. In addition, in order to tap into the younger audience who play the game today, as opposed to those who would have played it almost a decade ago, who would now be adults, the choice was made to make the film as an almost family-friendly natured horror. In the US, it got the less restrictive PG-13. Here in the UK, thanks to a couple of bloodier moments, it was slapped with a 15 rating. Sadly, this feels closer in tone to a 12A horror, and the attempts to chill are therefore diminished as a result. Hutchison, it must be said, does hold his own well in the central performance, and is easy to like and care for the plight of, particularly in the early stages of the film. It's also always a joy to see Matthew Lillard pop up on a film, and he does get to have a little bit of wacky fun here. But around the pair are some pretty terrible performances from the forcibly oblique and mysterious cop Vanessa, played by Elizabeth Lale, to the cliched nasty relative Aunt Jan, Mary Stuart Masterson, who clearly just took the money and ran on this one, and most critically to the escalating drama and tension of the story, the younger sister Abby, who's absolutely devoid of any emotion throughout. It's not that all of these are necessarily bad casting choices, but it's more that the material that they're given to work with is so trite that they've got nothing to offer to it. It has to be said that the faithfulness to the designs of the famous animatronic figures is commendable. And having played the games myself, especially the VR one, which genuinely terrified me, I did love seeing the small moments of early movement and the latter full motion of the figures. But sadly, the rest of the film lacks any genuine tension and frights. And it tries to rely on cheap jump scares that are so heavily signposted that they just washed over me. Five Nights at Freddy's is a film that has arrived too late. It offers too little and it feels too long for the content. However, it does have a bought-in audience, so you can pretty much guarantee it's going to be a success. But whether those fans will turn up for a second film if it goes into production remains to be seen. And so, sadly, that leads us on to the ugly. It's got Liam Neeson in. It's a Sky original. Do your worst. It's Retribution. Hello? There is a bomb under your seat. I will detonate. What do you want? It's money. Dad, what are you doing? I will get you out. End it! A remake of a 2015 Spanish film, Retribution sees Liam Neeson as Matt Turner, a financier at Nanite Capital, who's driving his two kids to school when he receives a phone call saying that there's a bomb in his car that will go off if anyone tries to leave it. He must follow the instructions the mysterious caller gives him if he hopes to survive. 
So begins a tense 90 minutes of peril and thrill as events escalate and Matt finds himself being the prime suspect in other bombings that have taken place the same day. Sorry, did I say tense? I meant dull, plodding and tedious. Let's put aside the fact that this film got slapped with the words A Sky Original in the UK for one moment. Let's also put aside that Liam Neeson has become a generic caricature in films of recent years. Let's also throw to one side the overfamiliarity of the concept that feels utterly unoriginal and was, even back in its original form in 2015, quite a cliched, generic film. What we're left with after discarding them? Not a lot. And it seems that's the problem here, because it all feels very generic, very safe, and very bland as a result. I do have to give some credit to director Nimrod Antal, who does really try to infuse some of the moments with some slick action. But unfortunately, he's let down by a screenplay that simply lacks any reason to care for what's happening. The film has a final act reveal that it thinks is so clever, but was clearly signposted in the first act and then blatantly confirmed through a ridiculous moment in the second act. Neeson is phoning it in and the kids stuck in the car with him, Emily and Zach, played by Lily Aspel and Jack Champion, are more annoying than heartfelt, making the fact that the majority of the film is just focusing on this trio in the car feel like a chore. This might be passable after a few drinks to laugh and mock with friends as a bad movie. Definitely one to pull out a movie cliches card game and score some points on. But aside from that, this is pretty standard fare from a nothing script. It's sad that we've got to a stage with Liam Neeson that this is what we expect from someone who used to be a prestigious actor, potential awards candidate. Now, we kind of sneer when we see his name pop up on a poster. Come on, Liam, you're better than this. Bring us something. At least one decent film every two years would be great. So that's the reviews for this week. What's coming up over the next week? So at cinemas, as I've just talked about, Bottoms releases, and that's my pick of the week. In addition at cinemas, there's How to Have Sex, The Royal Hotel, and It Remains. Over on Now TV and Sky, Magic Mike's Last Dance lands this week, and also Section 8 lands over on there. Whilst on Netflix, Reminiscence lands on there. Sly, the Sylvester Stallone documentary, lands on there, and I've got my eye on that because that's looking quite good. Uh, Parasite, if you've never seen Parasite, it's Ooh, dropping yeah, on Netflix should. this week. All the Light We Cannot See series lands this week, and I've got my eye on that one. And Nyad also lands this week. Whilst over on Amazon, Invincible Season 2 Part 1 is what we've got our, got our hopes is going to deliver more of that over-the-top comic book violence that we love from Invincible. Okay, that kind of brings us to an end of this week's show. I can't believe I've made it this far. Uh, so much so, I'm just going to jump straight into our neat things, stuff that we've loved, stuff that we've enjoyed over the last week. Andy, your neat thing is? So picking up from where I started earlier on, my neat thing this week is finding a new place to find audiobooks. Okay, and I found it through Spotify. Yes, Spotify now do audiobooks. And if you're a Spotify premium user, which I am because I've got a family group, so it was worth paying for it so that we've all got our own accounts you get 15 hours worth for free each month, which generally most audiobooks come in about seven or eight hours. So that's two free books a month. Whereas Audible is one free title per month on that subscription. So I'm effectively could be getting a better deal through my Spotify account, except slightly when I decide to get a long book. And I've jumped straight in with Patrick Stewart's Making It So. Heard great um, things about it. It's 18 and a half hours long. 
So hopefully my subscription payments will roll over before I get to the end of it so I can listen to the last three hours. Uh, but making it so is a fascinating insight into Patrick Stewart. So it's kind of a double whammy of a neat thing this week. The main neat thing is that Spotify are doing audiobooks. And if you're a premium subscriber, 15 hours for free each month. Get on that. Get looking through it. Add some books to your collection and enjoy yourself. But the second part is obviously Patrick Stewart talking about his life in Yorkshire from a humble background, working his way up to the legend that he became over the years. And it's so joyous and it's so heartfelt. Patrick Stewart's one of those people who I would sit, listen to him reading out a shopping list. He's that engaging. Get on Spotify. If you're a premium member, add Making It So Into Your History. Now, my neat thing, I can't remember if you recommended this on a neat thing previously, but I finally caught up with it. There was much hullabaloo about it when it landed. Everybody was saying, you have to watch this series. Well, I finally got round to watching season one of The Bear on Disney Plus, uh, which is a tremendous, compelling series. Quite simply, a young chef who comes from a fine dining background returns home to Chicago to run the family sandwich shop after the heartbreaking death of his brother. It's a world away from what he's used to, and Kami, the lead character, has got to balance the soul-destroying realities of the death of his brother and of that of running a small business that he's trying to take to the level of fine dining uh, and the kitchen staff are shall we say a little reticent to enter into that world this is 35 minutes of just pure joy fantastic acting from jeremy allen white who had not seen in anything before and is just brilliant commands the screen has this sort of hangdog uh, quality to him all the way through this sort of nervous energy combined with the uh, incredibly excellent Ayo Edabiri who's just stunning as his sous chef Sydney and even Moss Backrack uh, as uh, cousin Richie who we've heard is rumored to be playing Ben Grimm and fingers crossed let's hope so because he is um, a, another screen presence this is a great series. Absolutely yeah. loving it. Um, it's intense at times. It's like all good dramas. It's uh, deeply moving. And then moments later can have you smiling and at points laughing. Um, it displays the magic that I'm always interested in too, is how a chef cooks things. There are numerous close-ups of, of chefs cutting onions and, and vegetables. And um, I love to cook, um, but I, I just can't do it. And I watch in awe of that chemistry that they have with food uh, a brilliant series season yeah. two started i've just finished season one i cannot wait to get around to it it's on disney plus it's the bear I'll, I'll pick from that menu at every point season two is absolute perfection from start to finish a lot of the supporting characters get a real chance to step into the forefront in season two so i'm jealous of you being to experience that for the first time and I'm, I'm interested to see what your reactions are to some of the upcoming episodes uh, but yeah i jumped onto the bear quite early on because i'd seen jeremy allen white through the years in the u.s version of shameless where he played lip and all he was right. fantastic in that all the cast of the u.s shameless were fantastic but he stood out he held it together season one of the bear if anyone out there still has, hasn't watched the bear you've now had me recommend it and now you've had lee recommend it yeah. what are you waiting for get on it and that's us done, folks. We'll be back again next week with another film file. 
Stick around for more fun next week when we've got more deep dives, more chat, more nonsense, just the way you like it. See you later, my friend. Yep, I will uh, catch up with you next week. I'm not sure if there's anything going to be landing this week that we'll both get a chance to see, but we'll, we'll, yep. we'll see how this plays out, shall we? I've got a music video to shoot this week. I've got uh, uh, some days off. I will certainly see you with the funny pictures because, you know, I'm fine. I'm done. Put a fork in me. No, don't really put a fork in me. We're not very keen about the um, them teaming up with Disney Plus. It's going to it's going to make the Doctor woke. Oh, uh, yeah. Doctor doc, doc, Who's always been woke. Yeah, <laughs> didn't kill anybody. He's, uh, it was founded on the concept of wokeness. <laughs> Garbage. Garbage fandom. Yeah. We talk about them enough. Yeah. Anyway. Something that engages. The thing with these questions of the week, these answers that we're getting are marvellous. They're all so good that the deep dive suggestions list has increased tenfold in three weeks. Because <laughs> every single one of them makes me go, oh, I'm adding that onto the list. Yeah, I'm adding yeah. that onto the list. <laughs> so, has uh, Taylor Swift finally got fingered by... <laughs> <laughs> By Freddie. <laughs> Daddy, would you like some sausages? Sausages. <laughs> you're listening to No Marriers. I know you're not. Yes, you no are. Marius? <laughs> Mario, no Mariotations. No Mario. You're listening. No, no Super Marios were hurt during the making of this program. <laughs>